This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Lodro Rinsler. Lodro Rinsler is an author and meditation teacher based in New York City. He is a student of Sakyong Mipam Rinpoche in the Shambhala Buddhist tradition. He has taught meditation at locations as diverse as Google, Harvard, and the White House. Lodro founded a leadership training program called the Institute for Compassionate Leadership before co-founding and serving as the chief spiritual officer of New York City's premier drop-in meditation studio called Mindful. Lodro's the author of six books, including the best-selling The Buddha Walks Into a Bar, Walk Like a Buddha, and The Buddha Walks Into the Office. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Lodro and I spoke about a core Shambhala teaching creating enlightened society, and how we can approach that during the difficult times in which we live. We also talked about the Institute for Compassionate Leadership, what it means to be a mindful leader, and how Lodro works with young people who are seeking direction and the opportunity to be of benefit through their work. We talked about cultivating kindness on and off the cushion, and a teaching that's important to Lodro called the Four Exhilarations. Lodro also shared with us how to understand a complex Shambhala teaching on the four dignities, embodying the qualities of the tiger, lion, Garuda, and dragon. And he also shared with us his overarching mission in the world, which is to make meditation accessible to as many people as possible. Here's my conversation with Lodro Rinsler. Lodro, you're a teacher in the Shambhala Buddhist lineage. And right here at the beginning, I would love it if you would introduce to our listeners this particular Buddhist lineage, the Shambhala Buddhist lineage. What the heck is it and what makes it unique? Yeah. So I was actually born and raised in the Shambhala tradition. Um, my parents started studying with the Tibetan Buddhist teacher Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche when they were in their 20s. And it was, you know, meditation was sort of always around in my household. So it was actually sort of um, almost like a culture as opposed to a place that my parents went to on Sundays, for example, and did something. You know, it was just sort of around. So I started practicing early on. And um, not surprisingly, when I hit uh, teenage years, I decided to rebel, which meant that I started exploring Zen. And <laughs> Wild. I, you know, right, I know, very bold of me. I uh, went to church and I went to synagogue. I started just exploring religion more broadly. And um, after a number of years of doing that, I came back with sort of a renewed commitment to the Shambhala Buddhist tradition in particular. And I'll say what this is in a minute. But part of the reason that I was attracted back was the societal vision for this particular lineage. So Shambhala stems from Tibetan Buddhism, uh, specifically out of these four major schools that are often considered within the Tibetan Buddhist world. There's the Sakya school, which stems from um, the sort of gray earth Sakya monastery. There's the Golukpa school, which people commonly know um, as the Dalai Lama is the head of that particular school. And then there are the Kagyu and Nyingma schools. So this stems from the Kagyu and Nyingma schools of Tibetan Buddhism, Nyingma being the ancient lineage, one of uh, perhaps the oldest lineage of Buddhism actually becoming Tibetan Buddhism, we can say, um, and the Kagyu lineage. And Trungpa Rinpoche was actually recognized at a young age as the head of a monastery in that Kagyu lineage of Tibetan Buddhism. 
and studied with many Nyingma teachers in addition. So he sort of carries both of those lineages. And then the Shambhala teachings have this really interesting emphasis on um, being in the world. So there's an old story. It's probably much longer answer than you wanted for your very first question. I apologize. Take your time. Uh, okay. But there's an old story dating back to the time of the Buddha of a king named Dawa Zangpo. Dawa Zangpo heard tell of the Buddha in whatever way people did back then, I'm guessing YouTube, and um, went in search of him and was disappointed when he realized that the Buddha only hung out with monastics. He only taught monks and nuns. And he said, you know, I would love to be able to practice these teachings, but I can't abandon my kingdom. I have a family and a kingdom, uh, all these people who are relying on me. I can't just walk away from them. And the Buddha is said to have sent his monastic followers out of the area and imparted what's known as the Kala Chakra Tantra on Dawa Zangpo, the set of teachings that is really sort of a beautiful set of teachings. The Dalai Lama actually teaches, uh, imparts the same empowerment regularly. And he, Dawa Zangpo took these teachings to heart, went back, started practicing um, mindfulness, compassion practices, doing all of this wonderful work that ultimately seeped into the rest of the kingdom. You know, it's sort of like for anyone who's been meditating for a while, the question comes up like, oh, how do I start talking to my family and my friends about this? And he sort of exhibited this sort of show, don't tell mentality of, oh, I'm just going to embody the teachings and people got interested and they slowly seeped out into the entire society. And so that this particular kingdom um, invited people from all backgrounds ethnic backgrounds, sexual orientations, gender identities, you name it. And this kingdom was known as Shambhala. So this is the namesake from which this lineage comes from. This sense of open inclusivity, uh, society based on kindness. And it's interesting because, you know, Tibetan Buddhist traditions are often thought of widely as monastic. And this is a very much a householder lineage. It's, uh, it does have a monastic component. People do practice at our one abbey in Nova Scotia, but more often than not, it's actually um, people going about their day-to-day lives and, and embodying and, and uh, studying and practicing these teachings. So I don't know if that answers all of your question, but uh, this is sort of where it came from and also why I got inspired by it, that sort of be in society, be in the world aspect. Yeah, it's interesting that you would highlight that right in the beginning. And I know you've done some talks and emphasized this teaching on creating enlightened society. And that's a possibility for us as human beings, even in this time. And I'm inspired by that. Here you are as a, a young person holding the torch, if you will, for creating enlightened society during a time that many people consider to be a very, very, very dark time in our world. And I wonder how you can help people cross the bridge, if you will, from the pain of our time, the pain of racism, terrorism, environmental destruction, etc., and a vision that seems unattainable, creating a society based on kindness. Yes. Uh, no, no easy feat <laughs> to do. It's a bridge. It's a bridge uh, just to yeah. help us. Yeah. <laughs> um, when a lot of times when we think about society, it can feel very overwhelming. It can feel like you open up Facebook and you're bombarded by the news. And of course, I would never tell anyone to divorce themselves from the pain and reality of our existence here, because we should be well informed about what's going on in. in our communities, but um, it does feel like it's easy to get bombarded and overwhelmed these days between, as you noted, you know, the rampant racism that seems to exist in our backyards and the environmental destruction of our country and the extremely broken political system. Um, this is not even me playing partisan politics. I actually just think our system is not very well organized. Um, so we have a Time where this feeling of overwhelm is getting pervasive. And I've definitely seen this, by the way, in um, people that are coming to Mindful, the drop-in meditation studios that I run. Um, they're just feeling completely overwhelmed by society. Like, that's just like this monster out there. Um, but one thing that I found very helpful uh, that my teacher told me, my teacher, Sakyong Lipam Rinpoche, he said, 
Society can be two people sitting down and having tea, which puts it really in perspective for me. So for example, you and I are sitting here and we're having a conversation for this period of time. And that is one type of society that we're creating. We could create it from the point of view of actually being present with each other and open-hearted and talking about things that are meaningful. Or we could sit here and we could both be on our respective laptops, Googling things and trash talking celebrities to one another and all these sorts of things that, you know, are also things that people do. Um, so within that, we would then have this period of time, we would then go into our other societies. We would go into your work society. I would go into teaching a class and that would be my society. And then we would carry that energy forward. And you would treat your colleagues a certain way. I would treat the students in a certain way. Um, and that's a ripple effect. It really is. So if we think of society in this way, that we're constantly taking part in it, it's not something out there, but it's just a million of them, it actually is quite refreshing. So I could, for example, view my romantic relationship as a society. I view my uh, mindful, these meditation studios is definitely its own weird little society. Um, my group of friends, when we get together, that's a society. When I go on a long retreat with a group of people, that's a society for that lasts a week or however long the retreat may be. Um, so we're constantly in society. And the question becomes, how do we show up for it in a way that is meaningful for us? So I think the more that we actually practice, the more we actually start to get to know ourselves, ultimately befriend ourselves, maybe even love ourselves, um, the more we're actually connecting authentically with those around us and having a ripple effect on society. And the same way that you know Robert Kennedy in his famous speech talked about throwing a stone in a pool of water that we don't always know where the ripples are going to go. We can't always see them. And the same thing, I think, in terms of our society. We may get easily overwhelmed, or if we just show up for the cashier at the local deli or the person who is uh, across the way from us on our subway commute and just sort of smile for a moment to make a connection, we're actually creating society in a different way than what we might habitually do. So I, I really think we're constantly creating society. That means that we constantly have an opportunity to create a society that is a little bit more enlightened than what we are actually seeing and being bombarded with. Well, I love the way you're breaking it down. It also makes it impossible to go out there in the world at large being an activist without taking care of your immediate society, of your relationship, your family, the people you're working with. So I love that. You can't do that kind of end around where you're working on some goal and, you know, trespassing people in the process. <laughs> right. The question I have for you, though, is at whatever level, whether it's two people or a hundred people, that's the society we find ourselves in, in in a moment, what would you say are the most important principles or orienting ideas for this enlightened society that we can create? Yeah, I mean, similarly, still, so within Shambhala, there's the New Year celebration. It's called Shambhala Day, and everyone sort of gets together at their local Shambhala Center, and they play a broadcast, and the community sort of gets to celebrate, even if virtually um, these days, because we're all sort of connected. It's a beautiful thing. Back in the day, it used to be a phone call that we would all get on, and you would hear a roll call of all these different people gathered around the world. And then every year, the Sakyong... Uh, my teacher, Sakyang Mipam Rinpoche, gives a talk, and I thought, God, this guy's giving the same talk over and over again every year. Well, he gets the community together, always says, you know, we really need to be kind to each other. <laughs> and I realized at a certain point, because no one was listening. <laughs> you know, not that Shambhala are particularly unkind people. They are very kind. But it's like the emphasis that it sort of has to be at the heart of our interactions. It's not something like, oh, we should just be nice, you know, what? give me the real teachings. The real teachings are we need to be kind. Uh, the real teachings are that we actually need to show up for others in a way that they feel seen, heard, supported. And that's a deep kindness, a show of love for these individuals. I, I really do believe that's how we do it. So it, no act is too small. As I mentioned before, like sitting down across from someone on a subway, you know, like you could do what most people do and sort of ignore, which is fine. You could be mean, which is not good, or you could actually go out of, like, sort of go beyond your comfort level and smile at another human being, and that might actually perk them up. Um, the number of people that, you know, connect on long flights, it's actually 
reaching across literally the aisle and saying, hey, where are you flying to? And then becoming friends. You know, it's just remarkable to me. Like, I think we have a deep well and ability for kindness that is not often explored or talked about. So I really do believe that the Enlightened Society, this bridge that you're talking about, the roads to it, are paved with just people being, like, showing up for one another in a way that is kind. I love it. Thank you. Now, Lodra, I know you wrote a book called The Buddha Walks Into the Office, a guide to livelihood for a new generation. And we're talking about this idea of how we can transform the workplace and bring more kindness into the workplace. And I want to address this idea of enlightened society at work, if you will, and especially speaking to young people who are looking at their options for employment. Is it really possible for me to do heart-centered work, meaningful work, and make good money at the same time? And I'm curious your views on this. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I hadn't heard this term until recently, but um, a friend told me that he is of the slash generation, which means, and I, I think this is particularly prevalent where I am in New York, that many people are a DJ slash yoga instructor slash copywriter by day. (laughs) They do three things at once and somehow rent gets paid and they live. Um, And I don't think that's uncommon these days. I think there's just, first of all, a bazillion new options for people that did not exist. Um, Not that I am particularly old, but, you know, I really do think, when I was growing up, there was still the idea like, oh, you know, there's a good profession would be a doctor or a lawyer. And, you know, maybe there's, uh, you know, 10 other professions that you might want to consider. And now it's like, I don't know. Uh, there's, I feel like every day there's some sort of new tech industry that's starting up and someone has a new creative title and they're doing, I mean, I'm the chief spiritual officer for Mindful. That is my official title because we had to give me a title instead of co-founder. And I didn't want to be CEO. <laughs> I wanted my business owner to be CEO. And we said, fine, I'll be, I'm in charge of the spiritual side. I will be the chief spiritual officer that my job is to oversee the integrity of our space. It is a completely made up title. We made this up, you know? So there's no way I could have predicted growing up that I would have been, that I would be able to hold a title like this. So I think there's a bazillion options. And at the same time, it's very intimidating for people. Um, and the economy is not such that it, you know, everyone who tries gets, you know, an amazing success out of it. Um, so I, I don't want to sort of be Pollyanna-ish about people's careers, but I do think that there is something, and again, I feel like I'm quoting Sakyang Nipam a lot lately, but uh, there's something that he said a number of years ago that really stuck with me, which is what makes for right livelihood is not our vocation, but our view. Meaning that we actually could do any number of things, but if we actually are doing it with a view of cultivating the qualities that we would actually like to cultivate over the course of a lifetime, then it will be meaningful to us. Then it will be right livelihood. Um, Let me put it in the example uh, from that book where I remember I was at a university shortly after my first book came out and I was on tour. And um, very briefly, one person I met was about to graduate and she had a very specific idea of what she wanted to do. She wanted to be the chief marketing officer of Starbucks, which I, I mean, I was shocked. I, when I graduated from college, I was like, I don't know what I want to do. This was very hyper-specific. Um, so I asked her some questions. I thought it was really interesting. And then uh, met someone later on, same thing, about to graduate. I'm always very careful when I ask people about what they want to do. Uh, so I say something like, oh, you know, have you thought about where you're going to live in a few months when you graduate from school? Uh, and this person, they always jump right into the thing that they're going to do because they've been asked this question many times. What are you going to do when you graduate? So this woman said, you know, I don't know where I'm going to live. I don't know where I'm, what I'm going to do. I know I want to help people. Is that okay? And I said, of course it's okay. And the more I thought about it, I thought that's it's better than okay because there's so many opportunities in this world to help people. If her motivation in doing work is to be of benefit to others, she could go into nonprofits. She could go into... Um, you know, she could go into, uh, she can become a lawyer and fight for the little guy. She could go work within a major corporation, but actually specifically focus on their um, 
environmental impact and reducing it. You know, there's lots of opportunities to be of benefit if that's what you want to do with your work. There are only, there's only one opportunity to be the chief marketing officer at Starbucks. You are you're either that person or you are not that person. If you spend decades trying to be that person, then you're not. You're going to be disappointed. If you spend decades trying to be that person and you do become that person, there's still probably a high likelihood that you're going to end up disappointed because maybe you realize you don't want to be chief marketing officer. Maybe you want to be chief operating officer. Maybe you don't want to, maybe you feel like you neglected things along the way in terms of your family. Maybe there's, you know, you thought it would pay more. Maybe you thought it would be less work. Um, there's lots of opportunities to sort of be disappointed if you're hanging your hat on something so hyper-specific. But I really do believe that if someone comes with the view of, I want to be helpful, or I want to be known as a loving person, or I want to be known as a generous person, there are many career paths that we can find that actually meet those qualities. It's just different than thinking about it how we often think about it, which is I want to make this salary cap or live in this city or something like that. Mm -hmm. Actually basing our livelihood choices around something a little bit more um, intuitive, but often ignored, which is who we want to be, not just what we want to do. What's the view that you have towards your work in the world? It's a, thank you for that question. It's a really lovely one. I think a lot about it because, um, my friend Dev has a, a new book coming out called 50 Ways to Get a Job, and it's the most nonlinear book in a good way, in that you can sort of skim through and you say, oh, this is the helpful exercise I need, because it's based around, like, how are you feeling right now? I'm totally freaked out. Great. Here's an exercise to calm me down. You know, it's actually very practical in that way. But he and I have had a lot of conversations around this idea of a nonlinear path, and there are times when I with my career, I've sort of bounced around, but the through line seems to be trying to make meditation as accessible as possible for people. That seems to be what my work revolves around. And it used to be um, working within Shambhala centers. It then was uh, as an author and as a teacher, and it continues to be. And now it's at Mindful. Um, you know, so we get very creative around how, far we can go with making meditation as accessible as possible, um, including our like mindful video channel that people can tune into. There's lots of different things. Um, so my intention is to share the benefits of meditation because I know it's been so beautifully helpful for me um, and so many other people I care about. So to be able to do that in a meaningful way, the outer manifestation continues to change. You know, I don't know if I will forever do mindful or if, I will do something else down the road. I certainly would have predi- couldn't have predicted what I'd be doing now five years ago, ten years ago. Um, but I do believe that that intention is going to probably stay with me a long, a long time. Um, the intention of trying to be of benefit, and specifically through offering meditation. How would you help a young person discover inside themselves what their true inner sense of view or purpose or inspiration is and really get clear on that? Yeah, I mean, it is interesting because I feel like there's, along the lines of this nonlinear career path, I feel like the thing that triggers something for someone is always different. I've asked a million people about, you know, how do you know you wanted to do that thing that you're now doing? When, when was that moment? And every time it's a different story. Um, I do, just because of the circles I run in, the people I ask, there are a lot of people who say, it's funny, it's actually right when I started meditating that I realized X, Y, and Z. It's almost like they're creating some sort of mental space so that their wisdom can actually sort of poke its head out and say, hey, I've been trying to get through all this time. Um, thanks for finally creating some space to listen to me. Um, so I do, I do think that there's, you know, to kick the dead horse, there's a million reasons that someone should meditate. These days, you know, every week I feel like there's a new research study coming out saying if you meditate a little bit every day, you see increased gray matter in the hippocampus. You see more activity in the ACC. You start to see all these benefits that for non-neuroscientists like me apparently means you're less held by stress. It boosts your immune system. It normalizes your sleep. It makes you more productive and efficient. It's wonderful. But I honestly think you just get to know yourself better. I, I feel like no matter what, you're actually getting familiar with all of who you are. And that's actually going to lead to some aspect of discernment when it comes to career to actually answer your question. 
That means that you're going to actually start to notice things that you want to cultivate more of in your life and some things that you really wish you could cut out. And some of those things we have power over, some we don't. But it sort of helps to inform us for our career decisions. Can I actually, wow, I notice that I really enjoy X, Y, and Z. And it keeps coming up and I feel delighted. Every time I'm meditating, this sort of thing comes to mind. I feel delighted. This other thing comes to mind. I feel totally repulsed by it. And we just get to know ourselves to the extent that we start to get a hunch that maybe I want to pursue X, Y, and Z. Maybe I really don't want to do that other thing. Lodra, was there a moment in your life where the light went on and you're like, I'm going to make meditation as accessible as possible to as many people as possible. That's it. That's it. I feel like it was, it was just gradual for me. I, um, I never professed to be uh, like the role model for someone who's looking to find meaningful work because I feel like I kept stumbling backwards into it. Uh, <laughs> you know, I didn't set out to teach meditation. Uh, it was a number of my mentors pushed me into it. Uh, I didn't set out to, um, you know, write all these books. I started a blog and it sort of like spiraled out of control into an idea for a book and someone actually did agree to publish it. Uh, I didn't even necessarily decide that I wanted to do mindful. It was my business partner who approached me and said, why isn't there something like this? And I agreed that it was a beautiful idea. So it's not like I uh, had that moment where the light went off myself. But I love hearing other people's stories because it feels like I don't necessarily think I'm alone in that. I think it's like a gradual sort of unearthing of one's purpose. It's not, in my own experience, it was not a light bulb. And mm -hmm. I've talked to a number of people. I appreciate for anyone who has that, but I more often than not hear the, I start to discover more and more about myself. And it led me down the road of understanding that what I ought to be doing is blah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now I want to see if we can connect two things here, which is your personal inspiration, overarching mission, if you will, to make meditation as accessible to as many people as possible. And this idea of creating an enlightened society based on kindness. And here's my question. There are some people who, even before they start meditating, are really kind. And then they start meditating and they continue to be kind. But, you know, I've also <laughs> met a lot of people who have meditated for a long time who kind of seem to keep to themselves. They're certainly not talking to anybody on the airplane. And I wouldn't say that I would use the word kind to describe them as one of the first words out of my mouth. I might say something else. So I'm wondering, do you think meditation leads to interpersonal kindness all the time? Question mark. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, no, I don't necessarily. But I do think, it's, I have a theory. Let me put it this way. I have a theory that every you know people have placed this heavy emphasis on the being present part of meditation. Okay, if I'm meditating on the breath, for example, I acknowledge when I've drifted off and I just keep coming back to the present. Very little has been written about and emphasized in that moment, all of those moments when you drift off. And the tone we take with ourselves, the ways that we actually either beat ourselves up when we drift off in meditation or the ways that we actually perpetuate kindness in that moment. So I really do believe that if we could actually learn when we drift off to just acknowledge it, give ourselves an effing break, just to relax, just to say, hey, I have 80, between 60 and 80,000 thoughts a day, apparently. Um, of course, that's going to happen right now while I'm trying to meditate. Not a big deal. If we start to treat ourselves with that level of kindness, then I think it gets reified in our being. I really do. Just starting to treat ourselves more with more respect, essentially, with more appreciation, um, then ultimately leads to a deeper well from which we can draw from in terms of offering kindness to others. And I've seen it happen over and over again, uh, where people have, we had someone who came into Mindful the other day with um, an old friend who's going to try meditation for the first time. And I've known this guy since we opened our doors and you know, I was joking around. I said, what are you doing hanging out with this jerk? And she said, oh, you know, it's funny you mention that because he was a jerk. We've known each other for years. Every Tuesday we have lunch. And, you know, it's not that he's horrible, but, you know, he's not really attentive. He's not really kind to me. And 
just recently started really like listening to me and then texting me later in the week to follow up on things I had asked about and just making sure I was doing okay. And what's going on with you? And he goes, I don't know. And he goes, oh, maybe it's because I've been meditating. And now she wants to try it. <laughs> so I think sometimes it's almost like we need to have it mirrored back to us that, yeah, actually you're seeing some of these depressing benefits. You're being kinder to yourself and you're now starting to be kinder to others as a result of that. Um, so I, I do think that it's not going to have the same effect on everyone, but I, I do know a lot of people who have reaped that benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm with you. I, I also think, so I'm not saying that anyone's doing meditation wrong. I think that they probably are emphasizing practices that are not specifically, they're not considering the kindness element of it while they practice. Mm-hmm. Now you're emphasizing when one's meditating on the cushion itself, how we can start to be more kind to ourselves when we wander or fall asleep or whatever happens, start drooling, whatever might happen. Are there other ways that you've found, not on the cushion, to be kind to yourself that you think are important and then have translated into this kindness that's at the basis of enlightened society? Yeah, I mean, there's this set of teachings known as the four exhilarations, which I think when I first discovered them really changed my life. Um, And it's that if you do these four basic things over the course of the day, you actually start to feel boundless energy. And um, Tell me what they are. are, Yes, I know. The secret list. Um, It's eat well, sleep well, meditate, and exercise, uh, which is, again, the simplest list in the world. Yet, often, more often than not, many of us shortchange at least one of those in the course of the day. We sleep in and we feel luxurious, but then we have no time for breakfast. We um, skip meditation so that we can actually go to the gym. You know, whatever it is, uh, we, it's hard to get all four in in the day. So for me, personally, uh, I found that if I could actually take care of myself, even with that most basic, simple list, I could do those four things in one day then I actually am treating myself with a lot of kindness and respect. And I also notice that I do have more energy to connect with others. Uh, it seems so silly that it's, you know, this is the old thing of, you know, even a three-year-old knows this, but an 80-year-old finds it hard to do. Um, but it's a real day-to-day challenge for me with everything going on in terms of work and writing, et cetera, to actually be able to do all four has really changed my ability to be kind to myself. And if I can emphasize that, then I know that I'm actually doing a good job for that. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. So, Lodro, part of the reason I really wanted to have you as a guest here on Insights at the Edge is that I'm very interested in what will help create a new generation of leaders, compassionate leaders, mindful leaders, heart-based leaders in our world, so that we'll have a world in the future. And I know that you are the founder of the Institute for Compassionate Leadership. And I want to talk some about that. When you work with young people, people in their 20s and 30s, what are the skills, if you will, the qualities that you're wanting to help train and instill in a new generation of potential leaders for our world? A great question. So, the Institute for Compassionate Leadership was founded with sort of three pillars, one could say, uh, the first of which being meditation training, the second being community organizing training, and the third being sort of just practical leadership skills that are not often taught in colleges these days. Um, over the course of like a six-month part-time training, what we've done is put people through a process where they really do 
come in with some sense of like, oh, I want to do X, Y, and Z to help the world. And they slowly start shifting, changing, and coming at it from that point of view that we were discussing before of not just what do I want to do, but who do I want to be? How do I want to live my life? So it's a life marked by these qualities I want to cultivate in the world and in myself. And they come out the other end, more often than not, with a renewed sense of purpose or a new purpose altogether. And they seem to embody, so I'm answering it sort of in a backwards way, it's not what do I want, but what I've seen as, as after six months of meditation training, community organizing training, and just sort of practical leadership skills, is that they um, have further clarity in what they want to do, further confidence that they have everything intrinsic to them, within them, that they could actually do those things. And just, again, you know, a sense of like real deep care, that they really want to care for others. And for me, you know, this idea of a compassionate leader, it's not like a leader has to be the boss or that person in the family that everyone relies on. A leader could be anyone. It's someone who actually steps up in a given moment and is of service to others. And then compassion aspects here isn't that, you know, these people graduate and they think, oh, now I'm better than everyone. Uh, I'm spiritually up here and everyone's down there and I'm going to look down and pity them and take care of them. It's actually an empathetic point of view. It's not sympathy, it's empathy. Empathy here being, I understand that you are struggling. I have surely through the force of my own meditation practice become intimately as, uh, aware of how much I suffer and how I suffer. And um, because we suffer in similar ways, albeit with different storylines, my heart can go out to you. So for me, it has these, the city of compassionate leadership has these aspects of being of service, but then coming at it from the point of empathy and understanding. And as the Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh once said, understanding is the other name for love. If we can't understand, we can't love. So I really do think that they're intimately related. What are the practical leadership skills that people are trained in through the Institute for Compassionate Leadership? Yeah, it's, it's a wide variety. There's things around fundraising. There's things around um, interviews, how to do interviews, how to, do, how to network from an authentic point of view, sort of how to represent yourself from um, not like a, not how to market yourself, but how to actually present who you are and what you care about uh, in ways that are meaningful. Uh, so sort of like looking at some of these, I would almost say like MBA-level skills, but really ninjaing it from a mindfulness point of view. Now, one of the teachings that seems important to you from your writing, you call it embodying the tiger. And I wonder, is there some way that embodying the tiger is kind of a secret code language underneath some of the leadership skills you're talking about? Or tell me more about embodying the tiger and how do we do that and why is that important? Sure. So, um, yeah, this really came out of the Buddha walks into a bar, which sort of the span of it goes through what are known as the four dignities of Shambhala, the tiger, the lion, the Garuda, and the dragon. And um, with a tiger in particular, it's known for a handful of qualities, including the ability to just be present, to actually have the sense of precision. Jogam uh, Trung Rinpoche called it nowness, the essence of just being now. Um, so if you've ever seen a tiger, the tiger is not worried about when its taxes are due or whether someone, you know, can hack his email. The tiger is just there. The other qualities being discernment, the sort of we talked about this a little bit earlier, but this look before leap quality of actually getting to know ourselves and better. But in this case, the tiger being, you know, really surveying the jungle, understanding everything that's going on and then leaping when appropriate and, um, and striking. And the third being gentleness. If you've ever, I mean, I know that tigers have this incredible ability to be vicious with the claws that can rip through most anything. But, um, if you've ever seen a mother tiger with her cub, she's incredibly gentle. So incredibly gentle and playful. So this aspect of gentleness is, you know, even in the tiger, it's, uh, it's important. And I would say that sort of, you know, when we talk about the Buddhist notion of renunciation, I always think about this analogy because it's not that the tiger can't create harm. It's not that the tiger can't pop open her claws and shred into this child. It's the fact that there's real strength in renouncing that, that, um, sort of holding back on that strength. There's strength within holding back on 
that destructive impulse. Um, so we're in the same way, this aspect of renunciation, we could very well learn ourselves, learn about ourselves to the extent that we are not acting out on every negative impulse that we have. We could actually start to refrain from it and that there's real strength in that. Mm-hmm. So anyway, those are just a handful of these qualities of the tiger. But yes, I think there is something to embodying the sense of gentleness and discernment and precision and nowness that we could actually get out of a meditation practice that's incredibly practical in how we show up for others and how we want to show up for our work. Now, I, I presume with the four dignities that we're invited to embody all four, the tiger, the lion, the garuda, and the dragon, as appropriate. So why don't you go ahead and just lay it out for us? Because we heard the four exhilarations, and that was intuitively obvious, as you said, but hard to do. But I don't think necessarily the four dignities are intuitively obvious to people. They're not. Yeah. So the four dignities of Shambhala, you know, this is something that someone wanted to go to a Shambhala center, for example, uh, there's a whole series of classes on the way of Shambhala, which cover each of these in a series of weeks. So for, you know, five weeks on the tiger, on the lion, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's a beautiful curriculum. But very briefly, um, the tiger, you know, it's often associated with some of the foundational teachings uh, within Buddhism. This really, this aspect of getting to know ourselves, which I keep referring to, to the extent that we are being more thoughtful about our life, not creating so much harm to others. And then the lion, the snow lion is this being that um, is said to be incredibly perky, incredibly youthful, joyful, exuberant, um, and embodies a lot of the qualities of connecting with others, actually offering our heart to others, uh, being there for them. So we sort of take the leap from me working with me to me working with us. Uh, the Garuda actually is often associated with some of the more absolute teachings of Buddhism. Uh, sometimes, you know, the, the, known as the teachings around emptiness or egolessness. Uh, the Garuda is this being that is half bird, half man, said to be born in the air, never touches the ground, um, has literally the bird's eye view as a result. So there's a sense of equanimity there that the Garuda has mastered its open-heartedness to the extent that every, you know, he could be equanimous, equanimous with his heart to the extent that everyone is included. Um, it's also said that the Garuda shrieks the truth of reality as it flies across the sky, the truth being very obvious things that uh, we don't like to talk about, like impermanence and change and death. So, there's this aspect of fearlessness here, not being without fear, but being willing to look at some of the things that we fear and lean into them. And then the dragon is the fourth. So the dragon is often associated with some of the more esoteric teachings of um, Tibetan Buddhism, but it has this element of, um, I forget who said it, maybe Pamasambhava saying the, that the fire of fire, the water of water. I'm not sure if that was Pamasambhava, but the idea being that the dragon is the master warrior, the being that is able to show up on the spot and act skillfully because they're entirely there. Uh, so there's no as- there's no aspect here of taking the whatever obstacles come up as part of our path. That whatever we show up to, that's our spiritual journey of the moment, and that we, you know, the master warrior is able to play with it in that way. There's an aspect of playfulness and show up appropriately. Lodro, I think of you as a a sort of next-generation Shambhala torch carrier, if you will. And first of all, I'm just curious, how does it sound when I say that? How does that feel when I say that? Well, you know, I'll tell you honestly, Tammy, uh, I was at a concert this weekend, and um, there was a young person (laughs) with a top knot, a man bun, and he approached me and my fiancé and said, you know, I uh, 
I just want to, he's being very earnest and sincere. He says, I just want to honestly say, I think it's so cool how people your age are still coming to these things. <laughs> okay. So you're, but what you're, you're in your, you know, you're 34, 35, you're in yeah, your early, mid thirties. So to me, that's quite, yeah. that's quite young to me. I know. Okay. So I know I love, how does it feel to me? It feels good to be called young. Yeah. <laughs> that's how it feels. <laughs> um, and of course, as you just pointed out, it is all relative, but um, yeah, I do think there is there, you know, when you say that today, I feel glad to hear that I'm young. I also normally hear these things. I say, yeah, and there's only so many of us, which is really surprising. Because when I think uh, of Buddhism in the 60s, 70s, uh, I often think of lots of young people and many of them as teachers and sort of leaders within those communities. Um, and we have wonderful now more senior people, people who have been meditating for 30 40 years, but um, we don't have uh, as many of those sort of young teachers around. So at Mindful, we've really taken to cultivating a diverse group of faculty um, in many ways, but that includes age diversity. And some of them are newer. Some of them are very senior teachers. Um, and it's been really sort of a delight to see the community of that spread out because I, I do think that there's so many wonderful emerging young teachers um, and the other thing that when you say that is, you know, with the books and everything, uh, I have continued to be shocked that the club of, uh, youngish authors in the Buddhist world has been mainly populated by white men, myself included. Um, and I'm actually really delighted that I'm starting to see that change more, um, Three mindful teachers have um, books coming out in the not too distant future. Um, my fiance included, Adriana Limbach. It's, uh, thank you, Tammy, for uh, taking her under the Sounds True umbrella. I'm excited that you guys are working together. Um, and that's, it feels like a really lovely fit uh, to have Yes, a woman in her 30s who's doing a book on self-acceptance and self-love in a time that this message is desperately needed. And it just, it feels, I'll be honest, between you, me, and however many people listen to this podcast, uh, she's the better teacher of the two of us. So I'm really excited that she's actually doing this. Um, Sounds like a man in love. Um, but, you know, Kate Johnson's coming out with a book. Uh, Yell Shai has a book specifically aimed towards college-age students. Um, and these are all women. And I think that it's good. It's, I'm really glad to see that we're actually starting to see more young-ish people stepping up, doing books, becoming teachers. And I, I hope that will continue to grow. Okay, so one of my questions about this youngish presentation, if you will, in this case of the Shambhala teachings, is what do you think have been the most important translations that you've had to do? And I don't know if translations is quite the right word, but updates, relevancy, language, mm. in order to make the Shambhala lineage really alive and accessible? Where have you really had to apply your creativity so that youngish people care? You know, it's an interesting question. I think starting off with The Buddha Walks Into a Bar, the first book that I did, we had this idea that it was targeted towards young people. And I get an email every week from someone saying, hey, I know I'm not the target demographic here, but I love the book and here's what I have to say about it. And, um, and these are people in their 50s and older. Uh, so it's sort of cool that, you know, it may not just be, the work I do may not be just for young people, which is good. Um, but there is something about making the teaching relevant. I think the thing that I've always been curious about was this term meditation practice. So it implies that we're practicing for something. And in my mind, we're practicing for all these other aspects of our life. So if I am practicing being present, does that mean I can be present with um, my partner? Does that mean that I could be present when I'm out with friends at a bar? Does that mean that I can actually start to apply this and practice for all these nitty-gritty parts of my day? Um, so it's, I, I don't know, I mean, translation isn't a bad word for it. I think it's sort of just making it, maybe mapping it onto situations that we're struggling with. In the same way that you asked about 
um, you know, this bridge that we're trying to build towards enlightened society, given how many people's minds are on a really sort of dire, seemingly dire political situation. Um, you know, it's like that's something that we should all be talking about. How could we bring our practice to these things? Um, so for me, it's been not so much translation, or not so much like a dumbing down, but uh, making a mapping out. Uh, how do we actually put this onto our career search, as we talked about before? Showing up for other people at the office, showing up for our difficult family members. Um, so I, I think that's where a lot of my work comes to. You know, I, uh, within the first book, had a section on sort of meeting people romantically. And, you know, people are like, what are you doing? And yet people seem to also really connect with that and say, oh, thank God, I was actually hoping that someone would ever talk about this because I feel like it's weird that, you know, we have all this internet dating and things like that and no one ever talks about how to show up and be authentic on a first date. Um, so I, I honestly am interested in how does this become relevant and map onto all these nitty-gritty parts of our life? I don't know. I, I think the Shambhala teachings lend themselves to that, thankfully, um, as do many others. But Okay, so what, what is the brief Shambhala teaching on internet dating? Huh. Oh, God. Um, well, I mean, even today there's so many different types of that, right? Like, there's dating websites, there's you know, there's Tinder, there's all sorts of things. Um, and of course, I've been out of the game. So I'm an old married lesbian. I don't know anything about it. I'm just looking for the basics for our listeners here. For the basics, yeah, the 101. Um, my, uh, similarly, I, I have not been single for a little bit of time here. But my advice has been <laughs> that one could enter into these things with an open mind and not necessarily keep like a list of qualifications on their desk. Um, in fact, there's a great story of uh, a woman I know who had this list, this, you know, she, I'm in my thirties. I know what I want. She sat down, she wrote on a legal pad, two long pages of must have blah, must like big dogs, must like camping, must like, um, you know, must be this tall. And she wrote them up and then she went online and did this like, you know, eHarmony, I think, uh, and just started looking and so clicking these boxes, whenever someone would make a match, she would actually, whenever someone would match all of her qualifications, she would match with them um, and then try and go on a date with them. And she found that they were all met the qualifications, but there was no je ne sais quoi. And uh, she ended up putting the list, folding it up, putting it away, and then meeting someone who, in her words, flew in the face of all of those things. And I'm happy to say that five years later, they're now married. Um, but it's one of those things where I think with the internet, it particularly lends itself to us being having very set expectations of what we think we need to be happy and who we need to be with and what they need to say and how they need to act right off the gate. There's so many options. And I, I, my advice to everyone would be actually to sort of relax some of that and see if we can connect with people more authentically um, without necessarily leaping beyond the present moment into the future or what we have boxed ourselves into thinking we need. Okay, Lodra. As we come to a conclusion here of our conversation, this podcast is called Insights at the Edge. And one of the things I'm always curious about is the edge in someone's life. And in, in this case, I'm, I'm really curious to know, from translating your meditation experience into embodying kindness in every part of your life, what's the hardest part of that for you? Where do you find yourself stumbling the most? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, of course, no surprise there. I knew what I was getting into when I sat down with you, that you would be full of them. Um, I would say that um, one of the areas that I find fall down a lot is probably right around my romantic life, um, where I have the best laid intentions, and then I come home at the end of a very long day, and my mind isn't immediately like, 
let me explore who you are today. Yeah. You're probably brand new. You're not the same person I started dating years ago. Let me explore what that means today. It's like, okay, not that I would necessarily say I take my fiance for granted, but there's some aspect here of like, I can be completely delighted and curious about everyone in the world. And then I come home and I say, oh gosh, I forgot to do that. And here I am, I'm talking to you and she'll come home in a couple hours and, and it'll be nine o'clock at night. And I will probably ask her about her day and she'll ask me about my day, but it won't be the same as if I was on a first date with her, right? That level of curiosity, it really is a form of compassion. Um, just really saying, who are you today? This person I'm spending my life with. So I would say that's one of those areas where I, I'm constantly considering how to be kinder, how to be better in terms of uh, manifesting these teachings in the moment. Okay, and just to conclude, we talked about your overarching intention in your life to make meditation accessible to as many people as possible. Tell us a little bit about the vision behind Mindful, this business of having meditation studios and an online component, but more than just what you're doing with Mindful, what you feel inside you of the vision of meditation catching on, what that would look like to you, or even if you have a vision inside of that possibility. Yeah, I'll, I'll share that and I'll share my fears as well. Um, Mindful started as this idea of like, what if we just did assembled like a dream team of teachers under one roof in a space that felt very warm and cozy and accessible for people so that, you know, I love my my uh, Buddhist centers in New York, but I also know some people that are like, oh, it's six floors up, or oh, it was off-putting when I saw a shrine. So something that felt very easy to get to, very it's 30 and 45-minute classes so that people couldn't even complain about, like, oh, who's got two hours to, you know, like, we just tried to lower as many bars as possible. Everyone's first class is $10. Everyone's first month for unlimited classes is $75. There's, you know, by New York standards, relatively good. And, um, it was this overarching mission of there's a million types of meditation out there. We should be able to make this open to people so that people could have a month or more of exploration and see, oh, I tried Kundalini classes. I tried Buddhist classes. I tried Vedic teachers. I tried Jewish mindfulness instructors. And it turns out that what I really love is blah, and then I can go deep with it. So in some sense, I mean, we are the gateway drug uh, for, my, for meditation. Um, we give people all the options, and ideally they get hooked by one, and then they might pursue that particular religious tradition if they want to do it, um, which is great. Uh, it's, we've seen this be great feeders for Shambhala training levels, insight meditation society retreats, all sorts of things. Um, and I do believe this idea of a drop-in studio, something where you can just come for a morning class. And this is going to probably follow the same route that yoga did a number of years ago. Um, when my business partner approached me and said, hey, why, you know, why isn't something like this exist? I actually said, I really do believe that they will be sprouting up and you will find them like coffee shops in your neighborhood, just one on every block. And uh, we're still a number of years from that. But I, since we opened 18 months ago, we've seen probably 10 or 12 other studios open around the country, um, which is amazing. It's, it's really beautiful and to see that so many people are inspired to do this and I wish them all lots of luck. Um, now, here's, so I think that to answer your question, this will get very, very big, that this will get to the point where um, meditation studios will be, will be everywhere. I, we actually have a nonprofit arm ourselves called Mindful Ed where, we're bringing meditation into the school system. We actually just today had a group from a school come in and meditate with one of our teachers at the studio so that we could actually bring meditation to kids in a really accessible way. Um, we also, yeah, and the fun of like making meditation accessible goes beyond just our nonprofit arm and putting, you know, mindful video, which is all of our video collection. But we've also started saying, okay, there are people who can't, come to class because everyone's speaking English. What if we did a class in Spanish? So we started monthly Spanish classes. 
We have a POC group. We have all sorts of uh, communities within our larger community at this point so that people really feel like they have a safe space to go to and learn these practices, which is very powerful for me uh, to witness. Now, here's the fear. With meditation becoming so mainstream, I'm also seeing a number of people step up and say, oh, I did a weekend retreat with Tara Brock. I'm a meditation teacher now. I'm sure if Tara Brock heard that, she'd be horrified. Um, the People not necessarily understanding the difference between I trained with so-and-so and so-and-so trained me to teach meditation. Um, I'm seeing a lot of that, and I'm even seeing that with people who are starting meditation businesses. They see an emerging market. They probably even have a deep love for meditation themselves. Um, but they don't always know the difference between a time-tested meditation technique that's been around within the lineage and traditions for centuries uh, and something that someone made up last Thursday, which could be very helpful for a small number of people, but I would often recommend people study with teachers who have training within these long-standing techniques. Uh, so that's my fear in the midst of this, because I do think meditation is going to go the route of physical fitness, that back in the 50s, you know, if someone said, hey, I'm going for a run, other people would say, who's chasing you? Mm-hmm. It, it just wasn't, it wasn't the same awareness. And I think we're hitting that point with meditation. So then in the next 30, 40 years, we will probably see this big boom where it becomes very acceptable. It will be in schools. It will be, you know, meditation studios will be everywhere. And we will actually start to um, have this be part of the mainstream society because the benefits are so wonderful and and numerous. Thank you, Lodro. Thank you for sharing a bit about the vision that you see and what you're up to. And thank you for being such a, dare I say, Shambhala warrior in your own way. Thank you. Thank you, Danny. I appreciate you saying that. So it's a delight to be here and to have this conversation with you. I've been talking with Lodro Rinsler. He's the author of six books, including the classic The Buddha Walks Into a Bar, a guide to life for a new generation. Thanks, everyone, for being with us. SoundsTrue.com, many voices, one journey.